Excuse me for the burp freaks. What is up? It's your boy Marty Ben here. To introduce you, I think there's a rip 342, 343, 343. Sat down with Edward Evenson, business development lead at Brains to get a state of the Bitcoin mining industry. It's always great sitting down with Edward. It's been about a year since we last uh, joined each other on this podcast. Uh, the last time we spoke was in the midst of the great Chinese mining migration. So we had to catch up about that situation, what unfolded there, as well as everything going on uh, with the mining industry as it reacts to the collapse in price of Bitcoin. I'm staring at my lock clock now. It's 5,155 sats per dollar. So we're under 20K right now. Very informative, dense rip. Always a pleasure to get together with Edward Evenson. He, he admitted that he ate some cheese recently, which you, which you hate to see for somebody who's such a big cheese hater. Had to, had to eat some cheese. This rip is brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Right down the hall from me here in Austin, Texas at the Bitcoin Commons, TFTC Studios in the Bitcoin Commons. Unchained is here to help protect you from the mess that a lot of people are finding themselves in, in this particular market cycle. And uh, a lot of people trusted their Bitcoin with centralized lenders to get yields. And they're finding out the hard lesson that those lenders were taking their Bitcoin and lending it out to other people who were then taking undue risk with their Bitcoin. And uh, unfortunately, many people lost a lot of Bitcoin because they trusted these single points of failure, these trusted third parties, unchained allows you to eliminate that trust with their collaborative custody model. Everything they build builds from the base of multi-sig wallets. Uh, they have their vault, which is a two or three multi-sig quorum. You hold two keys. Unchained holds one. You always have control of your sats as long as you have your two keys. Uh, and, but if you're ever in a pinch, Unchained is there to be that second in the two or three multi-sig quorum. It's important to eliminate these single points of failure, freaks. <coughs> Even if you have your Bitcoin on Coinbase or Gemini or any other centralized exchange, who knows how this contagion event continues to unwind. What you should know is that it is not wise to keep your, your Bitcoin and centralized third-party custodians, distribute risk, eliminate single points of failure. The Unchained Vault is a great way to do that. They have a concierge team that is going to take you from knowing nothing to knowing everything you need to know about securing your Bitcoin in the two or three multi-sig Go hit their team up at unchained.com slash concierge. Tell them the TFTC sent you. This was also brought to you by the company that the gentleman who I interview in the episode works for Brains. I mean, we have two sponsor guests this week. Very interesting. Coincidentally, just coincidence. A Parker, expert on the macro landscape and everything going on with the Bitcoin lending blow-ups. And then Edward here from Brains. Pretty pretty in touch with what's going on in the mining industry, which is obviously being affected by the price decreases. So we got an update from Edward on everything going on in the market and what's going on at Brains. Most importantly, what you freaks need to know is that if you have an ASIC that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware, which is an auto-tuning firmware, 
that uh, really increases the efficiency of your machines that allows you to produce more hash to then produce more sats. Uh, if you're not running Brains OS Plus firmware, if you have an ASICs that's compatible with it and you have not downloaded it, you're an idiot. <laughs> you're just dumb. You're leaving sats on the table. Only idiots leave sats on the table. Don't be an idiot. If you're mining with an ASIC that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware, you should probably download it because you, you don't want to go home to your father-in-law and him be like, hey, you're running, you're running a mining operation, S19s, like, are you running brains? Imagine having to go to your father-in-law and say, no, I'm not running brains. He's going to be like, you're an idiot. How could I trust you with my daughter? You're the bloodline? You're like, you're, my grandchildren have your blood in, you, in them? Idiot blood? What? Put your ass down to your mining operation, download Brains OS Plus firmware on your, on your ASICs before I, I force my daughter to, to divorce you. You can go to brains.com. That's B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Here, I'll walk you through it, son-in-law. Open up your laptop. Here's the page, brains.com. And there's a BOS Plus tab at the top. Click it. Download it. Don't besmirch my family name, okay? My bloodline. No idiots in my bloodline. Brains.com. Go check it out. This room is also brought to you by our good friends. At Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle. Again, another company that's building on Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. They have a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform, which allows you to find peers uh, to, to get Bitcoin loans. Uh, you use your Bitcoin as collateral. You get stable coins in return. The beauty of the lend.hoddlehoddle.com platform is that there's no KYC, no AML. Again, they're leveraging... Bitcoin's multi-sig property, so your Bitcoin's held in a multi-sig escrow. You hold one key, your counterparty holds one key, and then Hada Hada holds the third key. Since you hold a key in that quorum, you have visibility into the wallet throughout the duration of your loan so that you know that your Bitcoin is not being rehypothecated. You meet in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion. You don't give up any personal information. Uh, you put Bitcoin in the multi-sig escrow. And you get stable coins in, in return. As long as you pay back that loan plus the interest, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. And you can monitor your sats throughout the duration of the loan. Go to lend.hodlehodl.com to check this out. This was also brought to you by good friends at Upstream Data. Big mining episode, big mining company, Upstream. Okay? Whether you're an at-home miner or somebody who's mining Upstream on an oil and gas well pad, Upstream Data is here to provide you with the tools that you need to mine to the best of your abilities. If you're an at-home miner, they have the black box, which allows you to mine at home. The box fixes the sound. ASICs are loud. That's the sound that's ended a lot of marriages because... Because people have decided to mine at home and just have their ASICs running in their basement or in their kitchen or wherever. And just, the wife comes in like, honey, like, don't you think this is a little loud? Don't worry, we're stacking sats. It's not always the best rebuttal. What you should be saying is, yes, honey, it is loud. But you know what? I purchased a black box. It's on its way. And we're going to put it outside. We're going to put the ASICs in it. And it's going to fix the sound. It's going to go from to... You're not even going to notice it, honey. 
If you buy a black box, use the code FREAKS, F-R-E-A-K-S, you're going to get 5% off. And then again, it's not only for Idaho miners. They have bigger hash huts. I'm an owner of a hash hut, a 50 kilowatt hash hut. Came with a, a mining hut and a generator that upstream builds as well. And I've had an incredible experience with my hash hut. Again, the only time I've ever had downtime is when I need to change the oil in the generator. Um, so essentially no downtime for my operation to date. And it's been up and running for, for a considerable amount of time. I have a Philly, Philly, I'm from Philly. I have a 50 kilowatt uh, hash shot, but they also make 900 kilowatt hash shots and other models in between. So whether you're a smaller miner like myself or somebody who wants to really plug in a bunch of ASICs, they have different sizes for you. If you're upstream on the well pad, they can get you many 900 kilowatt boxes and generators for those. Um, or if your utility company has, has excess electricity and you want to take advantage of that, Upstream Data has solutions for you as well. Go to upstreamdata.ca and fill out the contact form with their client solutions team. In that form, you'll be able to tell them that TFTC sent you. Please do tell them if you, if you go there after listening to this. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is here. Uh, to change the way you pay for your healthcare. Right? It's, uh, health insurance is expensive. It's a black box. Uh, it's not always reliable. Crowd Health is here to bring a different model to the healthcare industry. Uh, you go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC and you will see the Bitcoin Crowd Health community there. And if you use the code TFTC, you're going to get $99 a month uh, for your monthly fee for the first six months. And basically what you do is you pay your monthly fee uh, that fee goes to a bank account that you control. So it's, it's dollars in a bank account, bank account under your name dedicated for your healthcare cost. Uh, with the Bitcoin community, you'll take a portion of uh, that monthly payment and put some of it in Bitcoin as well and hold, hold duly collateralize your healthcare account with dollars and Bitcoin. Um, not collateralize, you're duly funded is the correct term, I would imagine. Um, and, and when you have uh, uh, an event that deems... Uh, that forces you to go to the doctor's office or you need to get a medical procedure. You get the bill, you bring it to crowd health. Uh, they try to negotiate it down for you. And then you pay the first $500 of that bill. And then uh, it's sent out to the community where it says, Hey, Marty's got a healthcare expense. We need uh, members of this community to put up a few shekels to pay it off. And you crowdsource your healthcare. It's a great solution. It's significantly cheaper um, than, Traditional health insurance. I'm a customer of it. Uh, it has significantly reduced my uh, monthly healthcare cost. And um, yeah, I mean, if times are tough and you're looking to cut costs in certain areas, healthcare is a very important thing to to lock down. Uh, Crowd Health is a great solution for you. So go to joincrowdhealth.com/tftc. That's our landing page. You'll find the deal there, as well as the interview I had with Andy Scrunover, the CEO and founder of Crowd Health, where where he eloquently explains why he started it, how it works, and why it may be appeasing to you. So go check it out and enjoy this rip with Edward Evenson. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. 
I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. <laughs> Where's your whip? <laughs> can, can we? Can you pick up your camera and go whip the people working on the What's Miner firmware? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I try to do my best every day in that regard. Uh, sorry to start out with that. Edward Evenson, back on the show. Head of biz dev at Brains. What do you like? What do you think about like the the marketing that we've been doing here at TFTC? I'm a fan. I got to say. Okay. Um, at first, it was funny, and then a little bit later, it was not so funny. <laughs> but it's 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 come full circle. Now I'm loving it, and the um, I think it's done very well, and the community in general likes it. So it's nice to inject some some fun into Bitcoin mining in these troubling times. Yeah, that's why we're sitting here. I figured I'd hit you up, somebody who is very well acquainted with the state. Of the mining industry, working at at Brains and having a bunch of touch points with different miners throughout the world. It's chaos in the streets. Bitcoin price is down. We have Celsius blowing up. BlockFi in trouble. Three Arrows Capital in trouble. Babel Finance in China. I'm interested to see if you know anything about that operation. Um, Bloomberg article coming out late last week. Bitcoin mining lenders. At four billion dollars of exposure, that is becoming distressed. What are you seeing on your end as somebody who's sitting and discussing the state of the market with a bunch of different miners from throughout the world? Yeah, so I will say that um, the last couple of weeks I've definitely been playing catch up in terms of what's going on in the markets because the month and a half before that I was taking quite a bit of time off, um, hopping around to a few places, having some fun but back in action now. Uh, what I'm seeing is a lot of what I think people in general have seen. You mentioned the Bloomberg article. Um, you, I mean, the three AC stuff, the, um, the BlockFi stuff, all of that, the lenders, it's pretty front and center in the news and social media. Everyone's been talking about it the last week. Um, you know, there's some speculation, I guess, or like pushback from, Zach from BlockFi that maybe they would not be bought for 25 million from FTX, but I think that tweet might have been deleted. Um, so things are going on fire sale all around. And as far as mining goes, uh, this is reflected in ASIC prices. Um, I'm seeing some of the newest generation machines, S19J Pros in particular, getting closer and closer to the $30 per terahash mark, and a lot of speculation that they'll go lower in the coming weeks, maybe four to six weeks from now, as more and more people feel the pressure, the, the squeeze as hash price goes below 10 cents uh, for the first time since October 2020, I believe. So um, I think what you're going to see is a lot more machines flood onto the market over the next month. And, you know, we could be seeing 20 to $25 per terahash for some of these machines. And I think this presents a really good opportunity for people that have been sort of building in the background to come online at the end of the summer or this fall because they've essentially got a, you know, 75 discount from what some of the pricing we saw was at the end of 2021. I mean, it was above $100 a terahash for for a few months there. People thought it was going to $200 a terahash. It's crazy how quickly uh, the emotions and the the outlook changes in this market. 
I mean, obviously, yeah. we, we had the black swan of the China migration. That was last summer, right? About one year ago, actually, yeah. today, I think. I think yeah. the CCP did it in preparation for July 1st. It was their uh, um, their 75-year anniversary. Yeah. And no, no, I, was it the 100-year anniversary? 100-year anniversary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we... Uh, actually, maybe that's a good a good thing to catch up on because the last time you were on, that's what we were discussing is the China migration. You mentioned the hundred year CCP anniversary and the theme of the anniversary was harmony. They wanted to have a harmonious celebration and Bitcoin mining was deemed unharmonious. And so kicked them out. (laughs) And you had a theory that a lot of miners in China were going to leave. Obviously many did, but there was another cohort of Chinese miners who were just going to warehouse their ASICs and wait for the celebrations to come and pass. And then a few months later, plug back in. Do you you think that happened? Yes. Um, I think that people got a little overzealous at the beginning, thinking that all hash rate was just going to have this exodus out of China. Um, I think I may have briefly touched upon this too in the previous podcast, but um, while, you know, Beijing signals and different provinces, especially the more local you get government, react differently. And there were a lot of vested interests on the local level already with some of these mining facilities who, there's just the way business operates sometimes in that part of the world that were receiving their own uh, incentives, let's say, for having these facilities online. So um, there's, and there was this big, I guess you could say, um, pushback against some of the data that Cambridge more recently <laughs> I was going to bring up the Cambridge data yeah. <laughs> real <laughs> they said that you know zero uh, hash rate was still in China but um, from people that have contacts over there for that have known mining operations for years over there it's very clear that you know uh, 10% would be a very very conservative figure for the amount of global network hash rate still online in China um, it's probably closer to 15 to 20. So there's multiple, multiple exahashes um, to, in the magnitude of 20 to 40. Exahash probably still operated in China. And, you know, maybe they're not operating at the scale that they used to, these, these huge mega farms outside these hydro dams in Sichuan. They're probably a little more distributed, a little more, uh, a little smaller than they were before in scale. But they're still online, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, that, that Cambridge day when it came out, it was like 0% of hash rate was in China. I was like, eh, I don't think that's true. I We're, can't believe the pools would lie to Cambridge. <laughs> can't believe they would do that. How low did the price per terahash fall uh, in the the pits of that, that chaos during the migration last year? Ooh. Mm. Not as low, I think, as people expected it to. Um, I think it recovered fairly quickly. Yeah, I think maybe like fifty dollars was lowest. Yeah, I think I was seeing fifty to fifty-five. Um, some people were getting some sweet deals in the chaos with Bitmain directly that were buying, you know, anywhere from ten to forty thousand devices. Um, and I think they were pushing the S nineteen Js at that time, which kind of had their their edge chips, and were only pumping out ninety terahash for the same power consumption as the J Pros. So during all that uh, tumult and um, migration and sort of lessening of demand and dumping of ASICs onto the market. Some miners scooped up some pretty sweet futures deals with Bitmain for, I think, even lower than that, potentially. Well, that's that's another good point you bring up, these future deals. I think a lot 
of the publicly traded miners here in the U.S. specifically are learning a hard lesson about these futures deals and how they acquire their ASICs. I think there's going to be a lot of strategies that change moving forward, considering uh, what's going on right now. Some were a little too quick to jump on some mining finance deals, I think, as well. Um, I don't have, um, there's nothing wrong with minor financing. I think it's a really interesting development in the space and very useful and will continue to be so moving forward. But I th- what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, in their models, uh, what, before they entered these deals, it seemed like they were only considering Bitcoin to 100K and they didn't really model it out for Bitcoin at 20K and hash price <laughs> at what it is today. Um, so, you know, over collateralizing and paying, you know, double digit interest rates for some of these financing deals is probably what's going to significantly contribute to, you know, this this massive dump of ASICs onto the market. And before last year, and it was still a problem this year, uh, there just wasn't enough infrastructure available or rack space for a lot of these machines. And that continued to be the case as some of these orders started to be delivered through the second half of last year and first half of this year. So you could see like a very slow upward tick in global network hash rate. But as a result, there's a bunch of, I mean, probably to the tune of, you know, 70 to 100 exahash of ASICs just sitting in boxes and warehouses. Um, So those are really easy to sort of justify offloading and selling to get a hold of some funds uh, during these desperate times. Yeah, a lot, a lot of ASICs are sitting in warehouses. And one company in particular that had this asset light strategy that it's proving probably not to be the best strategy in the long run. And yeah, then and, and going back to like the minor financing stuff too, what will be interesting to see, and I, I mentioned this yesterday on RHR is if some of these lending agreements do go into default, I'm very interested to see how like the repossession goes because you have a lot of these lenders in offices in New York City and you have these ASICs that they've used as collateral and and loans that they've issued out to individual operations. And I think this may be the first instance, these are relatively new products to the market where if you have defaults on these loans, these lenders then have to repossess the collateral. And that's a logistical nightmare in my mind. Yeah, I don't think it's, as you said, something that we've really seen done before. So um, in terms of, uh, I'm sure there, there'll be probably a lot of juicy disputes, um, altercations or something we'll, we'll hear about in the news coming up. Um, I don't know what that would look like or who these um, firms out of New York would contract in order to repossess or whether it'll just be, you know, it could just be a very smooth experience. Um but I don't, I have no idea how that's actually going to pan out. Yeah, it's another lesson we're, we're about to learn moving forward. If, they, if, they, if the firms were smart about it, they would have, um, or maybe they do, maybe this is a strategy that they actually employed, uh, having some capacity and infrastructure available to maybe start mining with some of these repossessed ASICs uh, before they were sold again, or um, hopefully they're not just stuck in a warehouse too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the uh, it was the big question in the beginning of the year over under three hundred exahash by um, the end of the year. What do you think about that? I know we're at like two fifty right now. I think I saw an estimate earlier. 
what is that like using a 30 day average or no i think it was like a intraday so it's like noise but um because hmm. last 30 days i'm seeing on praying finding insights right now is 214 exahash 214 I don't know with all these deals. Yeah. So like that's the that's the thing like with these cycles. I mean, I know there's a lot of oil and gas guys particularly have been waiting to get in. Obviously, if you have an oil operation up and running and it's humming well and you don't have a lot of debt, you're you you have a lot of revenue coming in and you want to diversify out of that throughout this summer. It's a beautiful opportunity to get into Bitcoin mining. Oh. Am I going to become bullish on 300 by the end of the year? I don't know. Um, I think there could be a lot of hash rate coming on in the fall, like you mentioned. I mean, these deals are are fire sale, like once, I don't want to say once in a lifetime, but very good. Like, this is when you deploy the capital to get the ASICs is probably throughout the summer, beginning of fall. And then the question yeah. is, can they plug them in quick enough to get to 300 by the end of the year? We've seen this a couple times too in previous cycles, but what we've learned, I guess, looking back on those cycles is that there's a pretty narrow window for you to act on these fire sale prices, as you put it. Um, but historically, those who did, when hash price begins to rise, you know, the amount of benefit they get in a six month period, um, like in the beginning of 2021, when BTC shot up past 40K for the first time. And you saw S19 Pros, for example, making something like $40 a day. Um, and most of those units were picked up between, you know, 2,500 to three grand a pop. So it was a very, very good decision at the time to pick some of those up. And I think people will benefit. And similarly, if they choose to act in the short term now. Um, but to your point about, you know, some of those people that have good revenues now and want to diversify some of it and put it into Bitcoin mining. I think that if hash rate does increase and does hit 300 exahash by the end of the year, it'll inevitably have to be people that close to the power source um, because a lot of the new entrants that were sort of trying to set up these hosting deals, even now, a lot of these hosters are, you know, all in. They're offering like seven to 10 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, I don't think a lot of hash rate can come online given the current market conditions, considering that, it, you know, a, looking at the stats right now, like a Antminer S19 Pro is making $5.15 a day on five cent electricity. And if we put this up to, you know, eight cents, it goes down to $2.83. So the margins are, are pretty, pretty slim, which means if you enter into a hosting agreement like that now, you pretty much have to have a bullish outlook for the rest of the year because if margins are squeezed anymore, you can get screwed over pretty quickly. What are those revenues looking like if you have brains downloaded? Oh, well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> is this like is is, <laughs> is this a sponsored episode? What's happening here? <laughs> no, I'm, not, um, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Disclaimer: uh, Brains so, is a sponsor mean, of the show. Yeah, uh, we and I work at Brains, as Marty said in the beginning. But it, it really depends. It's, you know, one of the things I, um, one of the questions I get asked the most when discussing the firmware is, what can we expect in terms of hash rate? And it sort of just reveals how little people still know about hash rate, uh, excuse me, firmware. 
and how it operates because you know there are 50 variables you need to consider before talking about the hash rate output you know what are you optimizing for are you optimizing for efficiency are you optimizing for hash rate uplift in a mining bear market like this when we first released the firmware for the commercial version anyways for the s9s it was in 2020 bear market and having so everyone wanted to underclock to 900 watts to get a deficiency boost which inherently meant that you're going to have maybe one or 1.5 less terahash than it would have had but you were getting a you know 20 percent boost in efficiency in terms of watts per terahash which meant was the difference between shutting off and keeping them online so having a little less terahash was in fact more profitable in that scenario than trying to get more out of the machines um, for that generation of hardware anyways and it can be said similarly of this cycle as well so you know back in the bull market everyone all anyone wanted to talk about was cranking up the juice or the power as much as possible on these machines and getting as much hash rate as possible out of them. Um, that's not going to be necessarily a winning strategy currently and possibly short term in the future. So, you know, if you if you use less power than stock power consumption, the stuff's going to optimize for efficiency. You'll drop from, you know, 30 watts per terahash down to potentially 24 um, at the sacrifice of a small amount of hash rate. Or if you still have a low enough power cost and you still want to crank up the juice, then you know, if you run an S19J Pro at 4,000 watts, you're looking at anywhere between 135 and 140 terahash. But then again, you know, the other variables come into play. Uh, it's not magic. It's not you just plug it in and voila, the firmware is going to produce these numbers for you. That would be under, you know, very good mining conditions. So how well have you, you know, built out the airflow in your facilities? What kind of cooling do you have? Is it air-cooled? Is it immersion? You know, what, what are these chips going to be operating at? Are they going to be operating at 60 degrees Celsius or 75? Because um, our research has shown that with the S19 generation, you know, the temperature these chips run at have a dramatic effect on the efficiency of the machine. And we've seen a pretty significant power drift the hotter the chips get. So even if you're running stock firmware, it's, it's a hardware issue. So if you're running the firmware that ships with the machines from Bitmain, and you know you're expecting 100 terahash for 3080 watts if the chips are running at 70 to 75c what you're actually getting for 100 what you're actually consuming for 100 terahash excuse me would be closer to like 3400 3500 watts um, if anyone wants like a really detailed breakdown of how the x19 generation operates under different heat conditions it's actually a free article on the blog over at our website at brains.com you can check out um, Got nice summaries, and for those that don't like to read, as is often the case these days, there's nice, pretty pictures with charts oh. and data. That was that was a cross. That was a shot across the bow of people's attention spans. <laughs> I, of course, I don't even know why I'm saying this. Listeners of Marty's are the most educated, refined, well avid readers in existence. <laughs> There was another piece you guys did on immersion, which is a big topic too. And I think that was a particularly enlightening piece. Because immersion, obviously, especially down here in Texas, has been a big meme. A lot of people expect you to dunk these machines for them to pump out a bunch more hash rate and be extremely more efficient. But it, in practice, it's turning out that that may not be the case. And I mean, the same thing applies with immersion as air cooled, right? Like you can dunk the tanks into this dialectic fluid in these. Um, or rather the machines into these tanks with the dielectric fluid, but 
the, you know, if, if your dry cooler is not running well enough or you're not keeping that oil cool enough, you're going to have the same issue. You know, the chips are going to run hotter than you want them to. So, but if, that, that being said, if you can, um, you know, depending on whether you have single phase or um, two phase immersion set up, if you can keep that uh, oil in the tanks cool enough to keep the chips cool, then you will see some pretty dramatic increases in hash rate, retaining the same efficiency and having them run very stably. Um, I know a lot of miners have opted for the immersion buildouts, uh, specifically in Texas. And I know it's benefited many because a lot of the air-cooled facilities are facing the summer heat issues right now in Texas. It's Um, pretty hot. It's train hot over there. And, you know, you have to deal with machines rebooting all the time. You have to deal with them running more inefficiently due to the heat, Um, you know, potentially tripping some breakers because of that power drift. So there's... uh, definitely some tangible benefits to immersion and it's becoming increasingly popular. I know not everyone's the hugest fan of immersion. Some prefer the closed looped water cooled system. Some drama in our friends group recently about that. <laughs> but, well, there's uh, a big debate going on. Well, and then, <laughs> then you see uh, micro BT and Bitmain. I think they're seeing, this is the way I'm reading it there. So they're uh, future generations. They plan to release on market, there's beginning to market that they're coming just with the water cooling enabled and they look very terribly designed. But it seems that Bitmain and MicroBT noticing that a large portion of their customer customer base is now migrated to Texas where we have the extremely hot summers and it seems like they're trying to front run any potential chip failures due to the heat with by uh, implementing this water cooling technology into their machines right out of the gate. Um, how are you reading? Yeah, that was, uh, that was a big thing. So um, I went to the Bitmain conference in Dubai in November of 2021, and a large theme of that convention was liquid cooling and sort of you know foreshadowed Bitmain's future plans in that regard. Um, Bitmain and MicroBT took two very different approaches to the liquid cooling uh, miners, Bitmain, I, I mean, I guess time will tell, and I've been hearing some stuff, but I, I wasn't a huge fan of the way they chose to go. Um, you know, having these containerized solution, kind of forcing people into those containers. Um, you know, if you if you use it's the same design, you just stick them on the racks, and you need to have this system, otherwise they won't operate in terms of the circulation of the the water. Um, these big water towers next to the tanks. It seemed very limited in scope and hyper-focused on people that would exclusively be using this for mining. Whereas I saw the MicroBT solution as a little more creative and applicable to um, a wider array of setups in that you can, you know, it's the server rack design as opposed to the shoebox units on the shelf, which save space. And two, it seems like the systems they've designed are, you can integrate more easily into various projects uh, to reuse some of the heat captured by the liquid. Um, you know, you could use this for fish farming um, because a certain amount, you need to keep the tanks uh, that the fish are in a certain temperature. You can use it for heating breweries. You can, I mean, we've seen this, some of the applications from Mint Green already that um, kind of made headlines last year and some of the applications they were using it for. But the fact that, you know, you could send in a team, customize, 
a water circulation system to reuse the heat for various applications from greenhouses to fish farming. Um, not only sort of reinvents the public perception of mining, but also lets you profit um, in more ways than just purely from the hash rate generating from the machines. So I think in the future, you'll see a lot more projects go the way of MicroVT. I believe MicroVT partnered with a company by the name of HeatCore for their liquid um, cooling solution. So it, it'll be interesting to see um, how the market receives in the long run, those two different approaches to liquid cooled miners. Yeah, what do you, what's your take on MicroBT and Bitmain essentially forcing these designs on the market? Does it, does it constrict the design of an individual operator who may prefer to build their own system and put it on these machines? Like, What do you think MicroBT and Bitmain should do? Should they just hand the boxes that their customers can can use to build their their own proprietary systems on or should they be offering these systems out of the box um i'm always going to be a fan of the former mentioned that you know you just provide a solution that is um you know that you can integrate with a bunch of different uh proprietary systems of your own design because it allows for more flexibility uh there's no way that a manufacturer can anticipate every single type of scenario that these miners are going to be placed in. And, but how, however, that being said, I think there's, you know, room for them to do both and profit handsomely either way. So you can offer it um, a solution that's easily integratable with the, you know, systems of your own design. But on the other end, there's going to be a ton of people that don't actually want to create something of their own and don't have the skill set or capital to do so, let's say. So, then you could have a service offered by the manufacturer saying, hey, if you don't want to integrate this with your own solution, we can come in and design one for you, consult for you, things like that. You know, there's a middle ground there that would benefit the industry as a whole. And I think that's sort of the approach that MicroBT is doing. It's closer to what they're doing, uh, which is why I like it a bit more than the Bitmain one. Um, but th this is, it's nothing new if they didn't do that right. It's, uh, the manufacturers have never really worked with miners and what they wanted and firmware you know, being them the, customize their operations. Yeah. Firmware being the, the main example there. Yeah. I mean the, 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 you know, um, most common one to point out is a lot of people struggled to, you know, as immersion got more popular to get firmware that would just disable the fans, which would allow them to immerse the machine as opposed to having using fan spoofs and things like that. It was pulling teeth to be able to get that feature for them for a while. Um, so, you know, if, if, uh, they would implement certain things like being able to manually shut off the fans or in bulk, just so these things could be immersed easier, um, it would allow not only probably buy some more loyal customers, but allow for a bunch of different setups that people are experimenting with yeah. scaling now. Yeah. And what's your, do you have any commentary on the state of the competition between Bitmain and MicroBT? How's that been developing? In your mind, you think MicroBT is gaining gaining market share? Um, oh, I wouldn't say MicroBT is gaining market share. I, but of course, bear in mind everything I'm about to say. I don't really have hard data on anything backing this up. This is just basically what I've observed, my interactions from various miners in the industry. But last I heard, uh, MicroBT sort of got removed from Foundry Space. Um, at a certain level. And then there was some news recently that they would potentially have access to the three nanometer chips as they come out. 
So there was there was some hiccups along the way, not to mention all the lawsuits between Bitmain and MicroBT that were going on for some time, and um, the sort of disappearance of their the captain of their ship, uh, Dr. Young, for legal reasons. So, and and then of course we didn't see MicroBT come out with any new hardware for quite some time either. They kind of stuck with the M30s, M30s Plus machines as Bitmain continued to come out with, you know, S19, S19J Pro. Um, there was the M30S++, but now we're finally seeing them come out with the M50, M53, which are their newest air-cooled versions, or rather, I think it's just the M50. Um, so I, I really can't say if they've gained market share. If I were to, you know, if someone were to force me to place some Bitcoin on a bet, whether they had increased or decreased their market share, I'd probably say it decreased a little bit, especially considering um, how many miners in the United States and North America more broadly were purchasing S19 Pros, S19J Pros at massive volumes. All the largest miner purchase orders that I've seen except for one were Bitmain devices. Um, there were a couple very, very significant micro BT ones, but nowhere near in general the size of all the Bitmain orders put together. Yes, it'll be very interesting to see how that continues to develop because just personally me, having run mining operations, I mean, I'm a, I'm a micro BT max, maximalist. I think their, their machines are, are beast. I mean, you obviously have Dr. Young, who you mentioned, who was the designer of the S9. I think over time, his expertise and his ability to design extremely durable machines will uh, will be a benefit for MicroBT in the long run. Definitely. I mean, those things are tanks. Um, they, they've never really had the same issues with heat that the ant miners did. You could have those things screaming at you know, 80, 90C, and they seem to work fairly well. Yeah. Yeah. And then the... Yeah. The... Um, the three nanometer chips that you mentioned too. What, what, what do you think? I mean, so that, that news came out a couple of days ago. Samsung uh, thinks they can produce three nanometer chips or they, they're pretty confident they can. Um, they're going to start allowing their customers to begin building and designing and building chips on their foundry floor. Uh, MicroBT being one of those customers, what does that mean a three nanometer ASIC if it, materializes for the landscape of the mining industry. What does it mean? Well, one, I think we're kind of pushing up against some of the um, dramatic efficiency gains that we were seeing before between the generations. I think after three nanometer, it's going to be um, less of a race for more efficiency in chips and more of a race to like, okay, We've already got these crazy efficient chips. What other ways can we improve the rest of the piece of hardware that we sell to client? Um, and there'll be more focus on, especially by that time, because these, you know, the design and build out of these chips. By the time, you know, from going into that room in Samsung in South Korea, where you have to design the chips for IP protection purposes, um, all the way up to, you know, mass production of a successful tape out. That's a that's like you're looking at like at least a two year period there. So these things take time, and you can imagine that by two years, margins could be still squeezed pretty tight in the mining industry. And um, you know it's going to demand that you have access to cheaper and cheaper power. So I think there'll be a shift after the three nanometers become more popular. 
I think maybe it'll get down to like 10 to 15 watts per terahash. But at that point, I think a lot of the focus is going to be on um, building out relationships with power providers, power infrastructure providers, and going into sort of joint venture agreements or the providers themselves getting into mining. So, you know, offering to uh, give some of these machines at cost uh, in exchange for access to some of this power and then maybe a split in revenue and also getting the power at cost. So I think you'll see a sort of change in the models where instead of having like these long PPAs or, um, you know, hosting agreements, those will uh, be abandoned by the largest miners in favor of, you know, having an exchange of what each party wants uh, at cost, whether it be energy or, or mining hardware, and then sort of a split in revenues with what those hardware produce. Yeah. And <laughs> what is the, uh, the most efficient on the market? Or I know there's some futures orders that are touting like 20 and a half lots of terash or 21 and a half. What's it's not clear. There hasn't been a huge rollout of the XPs yet. Uh, the mm -hmm. S19 XP that was announced in November. The at first, I think it was 150 terahash was stated, and then at the reveal, it was 140 terahash uh, at 21.5 watts per terahash. Um, but then in some of the images in the slides, they showed machines hashing around like 130, 132. So I think it'll become much more clear as some of these XPs roll out. Uh, you know, at scale, I think they just started to ship May and early June. So we'll probably get answers to that fairly soon. Um, but, you know, those are still the, I think those are sort of like the, the five nanometers coming to fruition because the first generation of X19s, the T19s, S1995 Terahash and S19 Pro 110 Terahash were still operating with the seven nanometer chips. The five nanometer wasn't introduced until the J line that came out, the S19J Pros and S19Js. So those, the first batches of new generations of chips are always going to have um, some issues, let's say. They're not going to be as efficient as possible. Um, but now that they've had some time to work out some of the kinks, I think we're seeing sort of the final form of the 5 nanometer and the XPs. Um, so we'll, I guess time will tell to see what, you know, if you have a batch of 10,000 S19 XPs, what the actual average efficiency and hash rate output will be. Yeah. And this is, uh, this is the, these efficiency gains or stats as an industry that we should be leaning into because when you, when you look at the overarching narrative of Bitcoin mining and the mainstream sphere, it's, uh, it's wasting energy. It's extremely inefficient is what a lot of people will say. But I, I think we have a scoreboard to point to like, Hey, like look at the power draw of these machines. It's gotten extremely more efficient as time has gone on. Obviously, as you mentioned, there are limits that will be reached, but these machines in terms of power density and how efficient they are, are getting extremely efficient. Definitely. Um, but what I was mentioning before is you could employ, um, you know, especially if you had access to your own chips, um, your own chip fab line, or like you wouldn't even need to use the latest and greatest three nanometer or five nanometer. Uh, eventually it'll probably be five nanometers that people get access to once they're easier to get access to as three nanometer becomes more popular, you know, because even if you are using the previous generation of chips in your devices, if you can produce them 
uh, say, you know, it starts to make sense at a scale of 100 megawatts plus, let's say, you know, you're going, to, as opposed to buying them from Bitmain or MicroVT on the market with a huge markup, if you produce slightly less efficient machines yourself and essentially acquire them for 50% less than you otherwise would on the open market, then so long as you have access to cheap enough power, you're going to ROI much quicker. And so if you're a firm that has access to the capital, and more importantly, uh, the relationships at the foundry level to get foundry space, then that's going to be a much more favorable option. So Sweet. I think you'll start seeing more companies over the next you know, two to three years come out with slightly less efficient chips of their own design and make and start mining on their own. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Do you have any uh, insight into Intel, their machines? What's going on there? Uh, what's going on with Intel and their machines? I have a, f- uh, a few insights, but nothing I could really disclose share here. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to put you in a t- tough spot. No, that'll be. Um, I appreciate that, Marty. Thank you. Um, it'll be very uh, interesting to see how this all develops. Uh, moving forward, chip efficiency, power contracts, models. You mentioned models earlier. Throw your models out, people. I hate models. Models never work. Well, I mean, generally, you you want to build multiple models for even just something like a mining operation, right? You you don't want to just do 100k Bitcoin. You want to do the worst case scenario, like the crazy bear market, uh, the the crazy bullish case, and then something in between, and then put all of your preparation into you know, building something out that will work in the worst case scenario and then sit back and relax and watch the Bitcoin come in. Yeah. Yeah. And as all this develops, how are you guys viewing your product lines at, at Brains as, as the market moves and matures? What are you guys working on? What are you excited about? What are we excited about? What are we working on? Um, so a lot of it's just business as usual, um, you know, supporting new hardware for, and then the, you know, the different control boards inside of them for uh, Brain OS Plus. Um, we're getting a lot more hands-on with that too, instead of just like, here's the firmware. Um, because of some of the like performance data we've collected and some of the experience of our team since it has been released in the commercial version anyways in 2020, uh, spring, early spring. Um, what we've done is we've sort of, or we have, and we are still in the process of building out this sort of white glove on-site data center service where we have a, our team, field engineers, people that have experienced running different pieces of hardware with our firmware on it and air-cooled environments, environments, immersion environments, because we have facilities here outside of Prague where we do all our R&D, you know, tons of machines and different setups, um, and then send them out to the facilities and you know, educate on-site staff, help with installation, help with optimization, give them a full rundown of all the most things, uh, common troubleshooting issues and things like that, so that they're well prepared to sort of manage the operation when we're not there. And we found in the couple pilot runs that we've done of this that it helps significantly. There's much less friction. Um, the people appreciate it. You build a closer relationship to the client, and generally there's much better results because inevitably you can explain everything to a T perfectly to an executive and then they connect you with the person in charge of all the operations and then you do it again. But there's always some information lost 
when it comes to the actual IT staff and operations staff on the ground doing it. So it's better just to go in and uh, actually teach people face-to-face and work with the machines face-to-face or in person, I should say. And it makes everything a little smoother for everyone. And people generally seem to love it. So it's nice to kind of have that service now laid out. Uh, what else are we excited for? Um, I'm, I mean, you mentioned Intel before. I'm really excited to see what some of their clients, you know, Hive, uh, Grid, um, Block, and who was the fourth one in the first batch that was announced? Hive, Grid, Block. Argo, right? I believe so. Yeah, so the um, it'll be interesting to see what they do uh, with those chips. Basically, you know, what form factor are these machines going to take? What's the performance going to be? Um, you know, is it is it going to kind of change the industry in a way where people start moving away from the shoebox design? Are they going to instead choose to replicate that, et cetera? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I'm very interested to see. Because when do they start dropping the summer, right? Uh, yeah, I think they sometime sometime this year. I don't know. There's always delays when it comes with these things, right? Like, yeah, I kind of ignore announced dates and just kind of tack on a couple quarters afterwards, because that's when realistically things will probably start get to to get going. Yeah, I guess that's another important part to bring up. Like, how much are the broader supply chain issues that exist? In the world today, affecting the mining industry, are you seeing or hearing anything about significant delays, either on the chip side or the infrastructure when it comes down to the power side of things? Um, sorry, I was just looking up the to make sure I got that list of Intel customers right. What was the first part of that question? They, are the broader supply chain issues affecting the Bitcoin mining mm-hmm. industry? Um, I think they were more dramatically um, at the beginning of the year and late last year, especially with some of the stuff that was going on with the um, lockdowns in China and how that affected shipping lanes and things like that. Um, Everyone remembers the great Suez Canal blockage that everyone was memeing out of. Great memes. Um, Fantastic memes. (laughs) The Evergreen or something, right? Was that the name of the ship? Yeah. But... Uh, and then, of course, there was, in terms of infrastructure, like you mentioned, no one could get a hold of transformers. So, you know, what was originally a three to four month lead time turned into an 18 month lead time for some people, which is why you saw, you know, some companies start doing some acquisitions in that regard so that they could sort of manufacture their own transformers as opposed to relying on, uh, you know, sourcing them from somewhere else. Um, but I don't I don't think there is significantly affecting the industry as they were. Um, People have the transformers now. And I think one of the things that's was previously delaying more hash rate coming online was simply lack of infrastructure. Um, And it was all in the process of being built. And now as more and more of that infrastructure is available, which to my eyes it is, um, one of the things is simply the market conditions. Yeah. Market conditions are dire right now. Do you have any... Any thoughts on the state of Bitcoin, the market, and I don't know if you're, you're a macro analyst or anything like that. Like, how are you taking 
Bitcoin's dump uh, comparing uh, in the midst of all this macroeconomic chaos? Do you think, obviously, a lot of people are, are piling on to Bitcoin because it's not proving in their eyes to be the inflation hedge that Bitcoin's been marketed as? Do you think, uh, do you think we're in a special type of cycle considering the actions of central banks around the world? I mean, the, the, the short answer is I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. I think it's sort of a, a black box to most people. People speculate and there's experts and everything. But I mean, right, despite what we all thought, um, at least many of us in, in this industry, the Fed themselves were claiming that, you know, no recession was imminent. And that tune has changed significantly, especially in the last three to four months. So, uh, but a longer answer would be that I think it's pretty clear that Bitcoin is not yet untethered from macro conditions. They seem to operate pretty hand in hand. Um, some data I've seen suggests that it's becoming less and less the case as time goes on, that in fact it was more connected in earlier years. Um, it's hard to really tell that from firsthand experience because a dump is a dump and all the all the dumps feel pretty brutal when you lose, you know, like 80 or excuse me, 60% of the value in this case. So um, I think maybe those people that were dogpiling on that you mentioned are a little too zealous on that, in that when you look at equities and things, uh, other investment vehicles, they've dropped almost as much as BTC recently. So it's not like, you know, these people laughing, aha, you know, BTC isn't a hedge against macro cycles. All these people have, you know, lost tons of money in, in the markets. Um, you know, maybe they lost 5 to 10% less, but it, everyone's down pretty bad right now. So uh, you're right. I'm not a, I'm not a huge focuser on, on macro trends or anything like that. Generally, all of my time and spare time is focused on just directly mining efforts and accumulating as much BTC as possible. Yeah. No, like, like you said, it, I mean, we closed the quarter out yesterday, and this was the worst first half of the year for U.S. equities since 1970. It's uh, very precarious times. But you've been traveling. Where have you been traveling to? I'm interested to see uh, if you're noticing any um, any effects of this chaos in the macro environment during your travels? Um, well, <coughs> I mean, the, the most noticeable thing is just fuel prices, but I am fortunate enough to have, you know, built myself into a position where I think I'm going to be all right in any case. I think with any of these economic crises, the most affected people are going to be the ones most at risk, like low-income families and things like that, which is very, very unfortunate. Um, in terms of the places I went, what I saw, I mean, I, they weren't, you know, there were, there were places that were doing all right already. So one was Norway. Um, you're not going to see too much of uh, an effect there, I think, just because there's huge social safety nets there because um, their tax rates are absolutely insane. And then another place was Iceland. We were pretty much just in the middle of nowhere, enjoying nature. Um, Portugal, didn't see much of a change there. And then the other parts were... Um, in Paris and Tbilisi, Georgia for work. It was mining related. So generally areas that are going to probably be largely unaffected by some of the macro trends that we <laughs> talked about. But to answer your first question, yeah, it was great. Had a good time. 
um, a nice break from constantly thinking about Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin mining and hanging out with some friends, doing some photography, stuff like that. What was the coolest thing that happened to you on your travels? Oof. The coolest thing. That's tough. I mean, everything about Iceland is completely insane. It's like you're on some alien planet and everything's at a massive scale and everything's absolutely gorgeous. And there were no people there. So that was a, a really nice bonus. Um, nicest thing. I took a street portrait of this Croatian family in Paris. And so they demanded I take a couple more and then invited me into their restaurant and cooked me like a three course meal and kept, uh, you know, making me take shots of Croatian grappa with them and drinking wine and got to know their family a bit. And yeah. What's the Croatian fare like? What did they cook you? They, the, this appetizer was this like toast. I can't believe you're talking about this. <laughs> this like toasted <laughs> bread uh, with some, some fish, some truffle oil, some dates. Uh, no, it wasn't date. It was like fig spread. Um, there might have even been some cheese mixed. I was going to ask. Did they, did they, did they forced cheese on you. <laughs> they really did. I'm not that much of a, a radical. Like if I'm if I'm a guest in someone's home or something like that, I'll just you know eat it and uh, be very polite and smile and say yum. But uh, you know, dying inside all the while because I don't know. If you listeners know this, but cheese is the devil's food and should be eradicated from this planet. <laughs> um, and uh, there was this, it was what, one of the main dishes was this uh, like the risotto thing on the side, and they took a whole uh, red bell pepper and stuffed it full of sausage and spices and some other things. Um, and then there was some like chocolate cake based dessert that they gave me afterwards. And yeah, it all went down fairly well with the the liquor. Oh yeah, Croatian fare sounds good. You mentioned you're highly in, recommend a beautiful place. You mentioned your people in the Czech Republic go vacation. Over there. You mentioned you were in, um, I actually spoke with somebody yesterday. He's going to Croatia for a vacation this week. Waterfalls. I need to go see the Croatian waterfalls. Um, yeah. Blew up. I think, uh, game of Thrones, like half of it was filmed there or something. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned you were in Paris in, uh, Georgia for work, which stoked a thought in my mind. What are are you seeing any trends in terms of the geographic distribution of hash rate that are interesting to mention? Is I think the trend is still pretty much what most have uh, discussed. You know, we saw an exodus of hash rate from particularly southern Kazakhstan and, of course, China. And most of that has either ended up in North America. Uh, most of it has ended up in North America. And then also there were the entities that already existed in North America that were growing rapidly, as well as some new ones entering the space. I think most of the growth were from already established miners in North America. There was a pretty rapid expansion uh, by people that had been mining already, you know, three to four years in the space. Um, I was, George is exciting because it has a ton of hydropower. So it has a good narrative. Um, it's stable power. And there's fairly good incentives provided by the government to make more of it. And there's, you know, no regulation or laws that are against Bitcoin or Bitcoin mining. So it's a pretty friendly environment to mine in. Uh, other trends, Scandinavia is still a player and they're continuing to expand, particularly Sweden. And 
there are a lot of sites being worked on far, far, far to the north in Norway. Uh, there's tons and tons of hydropower available up there. Uh, we're talking gigawatts, so we just, it just you just need to build out the infrastructure, which is well underway for a lot of it to take advantage of it. And of course, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's it's perfect to use that because what else are you going to use gigawatts of power for up in the the Arctic tundra, um, where there's absolutely no one living for the most part. And of course, Paraguay has actually you know a lot of people were excited about that with some of the news around the Ipai 2 dam, uh, that giant, probably the second largest hydro dam in the world with about 14 gigawatts of capacity now. And a lot of those actually come to fruition. There's a lot of people plopping down containers or building out warehouses and turning on hash rate there now. And because of, you know, uh, there not being as much available capital in South American markets, what they've done is basically scooped up a bunch of older generation miners secondhand for cheap on the market and can with their you know 32 dollars per megawatt pricing sometimes lower can still mine profitably with them yeah yeah paraguay is big and there's been rumblings of some stuff going on in argentina too and obviously you have central america with el salvador leading the charge and i've heard stuff uh, about guatemala getting into the game too so it seems i would have expected argentina to kind of take off more by now there was uh in 2018, there were some mining operations being set up down there. For South America, they were big at the time. They were like, you know, 50 petahash farms, which was pretty huge for that uh, area at the time. And I think there was a company called Bit Patagonia. I don't think it's around anymore. Maybe it still is. I haven't checked in a while. They were doing some stuff in Argentina. Um, and I think there's maybe even a couple publicly traded companies based in North America that are looking to at some uh, power capacity down there. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. What are your thoughts on Texas becoming the mining capital of the US, potentially the world? Do you have any any thoughts on the demand response? I know that it's there's a, a lot of people on both sides of the fence there. I think is it actually good? Mm. I think the I think ultimately the concentration of hash rate in any one locality is probably not a good thing. I'm super happy that Texas is so friendly to it and that more and more miners are setting up there. I don't think there's it's at a point where there's any risk currently, but I think just generally you don't want too much hash rate to concentrate in one place because that exposes it to uh, the whole industry to um, a lot more should say Texas decide to not be so friendly to it into the future. Uh, and then you would probably have something similar to, you know, what happened in China where tons of hash rate can just potentially turn off overnight. I don't think that's likely. Um, that's just, again, generally. However, because Texas has made it such a friendly environment to miners, it's a good option. Um, I think the biggest risk to Texan miners <laughs> are potential rule changes to some of these curtailment programs that you mentioned. Um, right now, they can take advantage of them to their heart's content, but um, because of the fallout of that winter storm last year, there are a lot of people pushing at the um, the state government level to create more strict rules around these programs so that they don't have the same fallout they did last time. Like people didn't have power to their houses for weeks, and it was, you know, freezing. Um, so. 
Generally, I would like to see hash rate more distributed geographically, uh, but specifically in this case, I don't think there's any increased risk as it looks now. And um, some of the people that were, you know, going to ERCOT for some of the, that were buying power spot, it hasn't worked out so well for them because prices have increased dramatically since the first miners set up there. I think buying spot in a lot of ERCOT right now where miners generally tend to set up are, you know, you're looking at eight to 10, like eight to eight and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Whereas before it was much, much, much lower, like half of that uh, in recent memory. So I think you're definitely exposing yourself to um, some, some pretty high potential operational expenses in the future. Should things continue to trend this way. Um, but I don't see any, you know, a doomsday scenario as a result of it, at least not now. Yeah. You mentioned Kazakhstan earlier and that, I mean, that's, I mean, we've talked ad nauseum, not just me and you, but on the show about hydro Quebec, Washington state, but most recent example of a jurisdiction luring miners in with low power uh, prices is Kazakhstan where they lured a bunch of people in to their honey trap and then decided to first raise taxes on miners specifically. And then I think with the, uh, the petrol problem they had um, beginning of this year, late last year, uh, the miners got signaled out. And did, did they officially get kicked out? Well, to your first point, I think it was like a 25% tax effectively. So it, they basically raised power costs for miners from like four cents to five cents. And um, most of the miners that were told to shut down were in the southern part of Kazakhstan. Um, if I remember correctly, the Kazakh government was uh, importing a lot of the energy for that region and subsidizing it. And that's where a ton of the hash rate was moving towards in, to in Kazakhstan. So, you know, at one point, the government sort of looked at what they were spending money on and realizing that they were actually subsidizing uh, Bitcoin miners in that region. And the whole reason why they began subsidizing energy in that region in the first place was to give, um, to like build industry and give power to the residents that, that lived there. And it wasn't actually going to that. Um, I don't think they were actually creating a ton of new jobs with some of the, the outfits they had set up there. And we saw some people try to stay online and sort of be, uh, you know, have their machines seized and things like that as a result. But from what I understand, it was very specific to the southern half of the country, and most of the miners in the northern half stayed online. Um, but in a in a you know when you mine in a place like Kazakhstan or uh, probably any of the stones, the I imagine that one you're always going to face more risk because what did happen could happen at any moment, and you're not going to be able to influence it very much. But two, um, I imagine if you have very, very close relationships to the people in power over there, then you're probably less concerned just because um, those those types of moves and new regulations aren't going to affect you as much. Yeah. It's coming off a little stonphobic there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, I've just, uh, I've done, I've done business with, uh, with everyone uh, across the world from many, many different places. And there's just certain uh, patterns and trends you pick up on. I'm fucking with you. Uh, what else should we wrap up? It is uh, late afternoon. 
on a Friday where you are. I don't want to hold you up too too long. You were gracious enough to agree to come on at this time uh, on short notice. Yeah, but, you just like hit me up yesterday, man. Like, uh, two days all ago. All my guys canceled. I'm not popular anymore. I'll just call Edward to see <laughs> if he's willing to fill in some. Uh, nobody canceled, but I did think it was a good time to catch up considering everything going on in the markets. The people who canceled told me. <laughs> and uh, no, I mean, I, we need to do this more often. It's been a year since the last one. Um, Definitely. What is it? Does that make it three now? We've been on here three times? I think so. Yeah. Wow. Look at us. Look at us. Three, three peak guests here. Strengthening the bonds of friendship in real time. <laughs> and these 25 people get to witness it. Ha! Car, what are we at right now? What's the live stream at? Yeah, it's thousands, tens of thousands of people. Millions of people tuning in. Just, just heard Ed and Marty speak. Just heard you admit that you've eaten cheese in the last month. It's hate to see it from the, the biggest. It was against cheese. my will. <laughs> um, all right. Wanna anything else that you think we should leave the freaks with before we wrap up here? Any lingering thoughts on the top of your mind that? you think people should know about oh things i'm excited for that kind of slipped my mind so just kind of winging this but uh expect some changes for slush pool in the next couple months we're getting a whole a whole new makeover so to speak i'll leave it at that all right well that's a good little nugget to leave the freaks with leave them hanging leave them at the edge of their seats as we say over here in the united states um Edward Evenson, go enjoy your Friday night. Thank you for joining us. I will enjoy your Friday day. I will. Have a good one, man. You too. Peace and love, freaks. Okay.